0: All right. Welcome, everyone. We should be on the air. We had a little technical difficulty, but hopefully we're all set here. Welcome to the class tonight. And you who are watching on the live stream, we are at uh, week 10, lesson 10 in the Gospel of John. So we have uh, this is, we have two more after tonight, 10, 11, and 12, and then we'll be finished for the semester. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace to us this week so far, and we look forward to uh, looking into the gospel tonight and learning more about our Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry here on earth. We're thankful, Father, as we look back for your purpose and plan for him and uh, your plan of redemption and how it worked out through history, and we pray that we can learn from this and learn about our Savior. We can learn of his character, his sacrifice, and this can encourage us and inspire us in our own personal lives to live for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at um, chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, and uh, we are chapter 7, as we can see from our kind of chart here of where we're at in the gospel, and we are um, at the very uh, end of, uh, uh, almost at the end of Jesus' ministry, you see the arrow there, we are at the final year of His ministry about, uh, um, you know, six months here uh, until... We get to the crucifixion, so we're in the fall, um, and we are in December or somewhat, sometime. We're in the we're in the month of uh, of um, we're in the fall here, I should say. So maybe nine months, I guess we would say, and uh, we are at the we're looking at events here at the last day of the festival or the Festival of Tabernacles, and. Um, Remember, this was mentioned in the Old Testament as one of the three major feasts of Israel—the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes called the Feast of Booths. This is on the fifteenth day of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. It lasted for seven days. Uh, the first day is the sacred assembly, and then there's seven days, and then there's the last day, and so forth. And we're at the uh, last day of the festival here. Um, here in chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. Now, we looked at this already, verses 37 and 39, but let me read this so we can get the context of where we're at. In verse 37, On the last day and the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. And so we talked about that Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. The Israelites would live in these booze or tabernacles to remind them, of the wilderness journey. They had spent you know, 40 years in the wilderness and so forth. This was to remind them. And they celebrated this feast. They had something going on every day. Uh, they would, here's the Temple Mount, the Court of the Gentiles. And the high priest would uh, go down with a pilgrimage from the Court of the Gentiles would go south to the Pool of Siloam. Uh, march down and I get this water from the pool and bring it back. You know, it was this route here. This is the, the, the uh, map of the tabernacle. And you can see at the very bottom the pool of Siloam. This is how it's pictured on this, um, this model of Jerusalem. Uh, it's a well known model trying to depict what it was like at this time or at the, about the end of the first century and there's the pool of Siloam. That's how they modeled it. Now, we have the description of it sort of from Josephus' other accounts. We know that uh, they have actually discovered it. Now, we're, we're just looking at part of it. <laughs> These are steps, apparently, that went down into the pool, you know, but the rest of it on the left side of our thing can't be uncovered because there's a major road through there, and if you've been If you ever go to Jerusalem, you'll be on that road on a bus, (laughs) and so you can't just pick that up and uncover it and so forth. So, But we know that's where that was the original pool that we're talking about here. And the priest and this procession would come back from the pool and they would go back to the temple and they would pour it on the altar uh, there in the temple. And uh, so this happened, and this is the last day. Now now we're looking at the reaction of the people here to what Jesus says, verse 40 through 44. On hearing His words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. So I say here, when Jesus fed the 5,000, some thought he might be the prophet whom Moses predicted. Remember, we've looked at Deuteronomy 18, 15 a couple of times. That's the verse where Moses said, God's going to raise up a prophet like me. It's a prediction of the Messiah. It's not specific you know, to Jesus, but it's of the Messiah. Perhaps Jesus' words in verses 37 through 38 prompt some people to think of the water from the rock provided by Moses. Remember, Moses struck the rock and the Israelites got water in the desert. Others, however, believed him to be the Messiah. So the question is, you know, we know that reference that Moses made to the prophet was to the Messiah, but not everybody, not all Jewish interpreters interpreted all those as Messianic. There's the prophet and then there's references to the Messiah. So they're distinguishing those two, uh, as though they were. Many Jews in the first century believed that they were two different individuals. Still, others refused to believe because of their misunderstanding about Jesus' birthplace. You know, they, as far as they knew, he came from Nazareth in Galilee, up north, and not from Bethlehem. And remember, Micah 5:2, "But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, uh, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come." From me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from, all, from ancient times. So they knew that Jesus is from Nazareth, He's from Galilee, he couldn't be the Messiah. You know? Now they didn't know, of course, what we know, that he actually his parents traveled <laughs> down to Bethlehem and he was actually born there in fulfillment of Micah 5:2. So others were hostile, they would have seized him, uh, for prosecution or maybe bodily harm, but it says no one laid a hand on him. His hour had not come, as we're constantly told. So through providential means or maybe sometimes through miraculous means, I don't know, uh, people were not allowed, were not able to lay hands on him and, uh, at this particular time. Now that's coming pretty quickly here, a few months. Then we see the reaction of the Sanhedrin here in uh, 745. Through 52. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priest and the Pharisees, who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke this way, the the way this man does, the guards replied. So the temple guards, who had been sent by the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus back in verse 32, returned without accomplishing their mission. We must remember that these guards were actually Levites, religiously trained men. So remember, we talked about these temple guards, that the people who controlled the temple was, was the Sanhedrin, and uh, the, they had the Levites. They administered the temple and everything that went on. Uh, within the Levites were the Aaronic priesthood, but the Levites were a larger group, and uh, there was an actual military guard, soldiers. These people were soldiers, and we said, remember we talked about the captain of the temple guard who was the son of the high priest, who is actually in control of these people. These are the people that ultimately, when uh, we talked about that verse when Pilate says, you know, they, the religious leaders come to Pilate and say, hey, uh, you better guard this tomb because his disciples will come and steal his body away and say he's been resurrected. And uh, he says to them, hey, you got some soldiers, take them, man, guard it. Guard it all you want to. And that's what they do. They do uh, guard it. So, these are the same temple guard. And these guards, these Levites, were, they said here, were amazed at his teaching, uh, particularly the manner in which he taught. And they saw how he affected the crowds and the temple courts. They had never seen anything like this, you know. So, uh, you know, that's how they replied no one ever spoke this way. This man does. We've never seen anything like this. And so verse 47, here are the leaders, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees. Uh, you mean, so in the priesthood, I just should say, remember, these chief priests are, are over the priest.'re you know, just a, So the, the priesthood was divided, divided into 24 divisions, 24 divisions. All the priests were divided into 24 divisions. And if you were in a certain division, like John the Baptist's father was, uh, two weeks out of the 48 weeks you served in the temple. You might, you might serve actually offering sacrifices or whatever it is uh, two weeks a year. And uh, so uh, these, um, these, uh, these, these uh, chief priests were the priests over those divisions. So they were the priests, then their leaders, the chief priests, and then the high priest above that. So these are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who aren't connected to the priesthood. member. that's a religious sect, but they have a lot of influence with the people, uh, more influence than the Sanhedrin, more popular than the Sanhedrin. So, but you know, Jesus is opposed by both of them, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They all are out to get him. You know, ultimately, in the end, here. So, uh, so uh, they're they're you know they're amazed and. Uh, they say, uh, you know, has he deceived you also? You, you, we sent you out to grab this guy, and all you do is say, hey, this, this, this man taught like no one's ever done. Are you deceived too? Uh, the Pharisees retorted, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. So the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin do not criticize the guards for disobeying their orders, but from, for their perspective, for being easily deceived. I mean, ultimately they are criticizing them in a sense for disobeying, but the point they bring up is, what's wrong with you fellows? You, can't you see through this? As Levites, they should have known better than to be taken by this imposter. That's the point. These guards are acting like uneducated mob. The uneducated mob, which the rabbis condescendingly call the people of the land. So the religious leaders had little respect for the average person, the average Israelite, ordinary people. They regarded them as religiously illiterate and so forth. And so they're, you know, they're saying, you're just acting like these. We know these people can be deceived, but you shouldn't be. You're, you're, you're Levites, you've been religiously trained, and so forth. You should know better. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, remember John 3, and who was one of their own number. Pharisees, asked, does does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been saying? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So Nicodemus, who we introduced in chapter 3, speaks up, not to defend Jesus directly, but to make a procedural point which amounts to a plea for fairness. The council was itself guilty of prejudice if it condemned Jesus without even giving him a hearing. But the colleagues of Nicodemus were too worked up and too hostile to listen to mere reason. They replied with contempt, are you from Galilee too? So their only explanation for a man like Nicodemus, who is is a Pharisee and a well-known Pharisee, their only explanation here is sort of to mock him, uh, and say, hey, did you come from Galilee? Are you are you saying this because you came from Galilee or something? Which the Jews, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, wouldn't look would not look uh, approvingly at Galilee. Galilee was considered out, you know an outside kind of thing. A lot of Gentiles there. Not people in Galilee were not uh, as religiously, uh, not as rigorously attentive to the law and so forth. So. They're sort of casting aspersion here. And they claim that no prophet, you know, comes from Galilee. Uh, Now, that's not found in any Jewish sources. There's no Jewish source that says a prophet can't come from Galilee. In fact, we know that a couple prophets did come from Galilee. Jonah uh, came from there and uh, Nahum, apparently, I think, Capernaum. Uh, those are two examples, uh, and perhaps there are other, but maybe they're just angry, <laughs> and they just kind of ignore the fact, hey, listen, no prophet's coming from Galilee. It's just an area where there is uh, not, not religiously adherent, whatever the case, but it's not really true that no prophet came out of Galilee. Well, that's 752. Now notice 753 through 811, the woman taken in adultery. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, thought about this issue before or this problem, or if you look at your Bibles, you will see there is a break in the text here. Uh, I I should have taken a picture of some of this, but there's a break because there's some question, a lot of serious question about whether this section was originally part of the Bible. Is it originally a part? Notice what I say here. This is the 753 through 811. The NIV has this statement after 753. So if you open your NIV and you look after 753, it'll say this: "The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses that means other languages besides Greek, like Latin or Syriac or other language other witnesses do not have John 753 through 811." That is they go from 752 to 812. So what we're saying is that the, most, uh, the oldest manuscripts we'll see would say John 752, and they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you'll find that no prophet comes from Galilee. And then it goes to 812. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, so that's how... Uh, the oldest manuscripts read it just jumps from 7:52 to 8:11, and that's what the NIV is saying here. Uh, many ancient, many other ancient, the earliest manuscripts and many ancient witnesses do not have John 753 through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after, or in part after John 7:36 some after John 21, 25, some after Luke 21, 38, or 24, 53. So you can find manuscripts which have these verses, the story of the woman taking adultery, a well-known story. I think most of us are familiar with it, you know, uh, where they want to stone this woman because they say she's committed adultery, and Jesus says, you who are without sin cast the first stone. You know, we're familiar with that story, a well-known story. Uh, So... uh, these verses are sometimes put in different places uh, in different manuscripts. So on the one hand, some manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts don't have it. Now, the NIV Study Bible, which is a study Bible, adds this as kind of an explanation. Although this story probably recounts a real event from the Jesus life, it's almost certainly not originally part of John's Gospel. Modern English versions set it off from the rest of the text because these verses are absent from virtually all Greek, early Greek manuscripts we possess. So as again, I'll say if you look at your Bible, I don't know if you ever noticed it before, but you'll see when you get to John seven fifty three, there's a break. It just doesn't go continuously. There's an explanation and it's brackets or something to tell you, hey, there's something going on here. Now, I mentioned another Bible because all English Bibles... King James doesn't, but uh, all modern English Bibles have some note about this. So here's the ESV. So the two most popular English Bibles outside of the King James today would be the NIV, the ESV, English Standard Version. The ESV has this statement after 753. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. That's all they say. (laughs) just doesn't include it. Now here's the study Bible as this note. There is considerable doubt that this story is part of John's original gospel, for it is absent from all of the oldest manuscripts, but there is nothing in it unworthy of sound doctrine. It seems best to view the story as something that probably happened during Jesus' ministry, but that was not originally part of what John wrote in his gospel. Therefore, it should not be considered as part of Scripture and should not be used as the basis for building any point of doctrine unless confirmed in Scripture, that is, uh, uh, obviously inspired scripture. If this is the case, I say, if this, if, this, if this is the case that all early manuscripts of the New Testament do not have these verses, and I might add that all early Christian writers are aware, unaware of this passage. So all the early manuscripts don't have this. All the early Christian writers, first century, second century, third century, they don't, They don't discuss this passage. They don't know anything. They don't seem to know anything about it. They talk about the Gospel of John. They don't know anything about this. If that's true, why was it included in our English Bibles, our earliest English Bibles? So the earliest English Bible from the Greek was Tyndall's New Testament, 1526. Okay? 1526 was the earliest English Bible. That's because these translators had no access to the early manuscripts of the New Testament that we now possess. We now possess copies of John's Gospel going back to the year A.D. 125, which is probably within 40 years of the writing of the Gospel of John. Okay. So here's a little chart to try to maybe explain what's going on here this is a tough problem. How many people are aware of this problem before I just mentioned, have you, were you aware of this or did you know about it? Okay, you knew, okay, good. In seminary, this is one of the questions that comes up. Now, students are taught in seminary, the evidence here, and we look at the Greek and, you know, and so, you know, if you get a graduate of Detroit Baptist Seminary, he's gonna say, he's gonna tell you, no, it's not in the Bible not supposed to be in the Bible. It's not there. He'll tell you, all of them will tell you. If you ask Pastor Ken, he'll say no. But it's not subject, it's not easy to discuss <laughs> because there it is, you know, it's in your Bible. How did he get in the Bible? You know, I never, I never heard this before. Aren't you taking, aren't you trying to cut the Bible? You know, it's really a tough, tough question. This question, this is part of textual criticism. or trying to look at the manuscripts and determine what the original text is. So how did this happen? Well, today we've got about 5,300 manuscripts or parts of manuscripts, Greek manuscripts we have today. So the first printed Greek New Testament, so, you know, the invention of printing, 14, 15th century, 1450, 1440, you know, the first... So before then people looked at had to look at manuscripts, you know, Greek or Latin. Latin was the language in the from, you know, say 400 to right up to 1500 Latin was the language. Everybody read their Bible in Latin. So the first uh, actual printed Greek New Testament is by a man by the name of Erasmus, a Dutch scholar, famous guy. And uh, 1516 So in 1516, so remember the King James 1611, about 100 years before, the first Greek New Testament, 1516 by Erasmus. And so he is trying to compile or get trying to produce a printed Greek New Testament. And he only had access to eight manuscripts. Now, not eight of the entire New Testament, eight complete. It's hard to find ancient manuscripts that have the whole Bible in them. They're usually Paul's epistles or the Gospel of John or something like that. So he had eight, three of the Gospels. He had three manuscripts of the Gospel. They all had this. They all, had, they all have this. They're all quite late. I say here, uh, reading on, uh, William Tyndall translated the first English Bible from a printed Greek New Testament produced in 1516 by a scholar named Erasmus who used only eight Greek manuscripts dating from the 11th to the 15th centuries. The story of the woman taken in adultery is an ancient story, though an, it seems to have only become part of the manuscript tradition after the year 1000. So, It was in the manuscripts that Erasmus had, the three gospel manuscripts, but they were all late, 13th, 14th, 15th century, not early manuscripts. They were not known in Europe at that time. These were discovered over time, over years since that time. Now, this Greek New Testament that he produced, he produced five, he he produced different editions. He improved it and worked over it and so forth. He only had one manuscript of the book of Revelation. Well, that's a problem because unless that manuscript was perfect, you didn't get a perfect copy of Revelation, you know, so, but uh, over time, this, this, uh, this printed text was printed by others. There was no copyright laws in it. So other people would print it. They used additional manuscripts. They produced, There's about 30 editions up until modern times. These editions came to be called the Textus Receptus. That's a Latin word for received text. The word Textus Receptus comes from an advertising blurb in 1633. This is 1516, 1633. One guy who produced a Greek New Testament said, I'm giving you the text that's received by all, the Textus Receptus, and so forth. So we have in our day, we have Christians who say, This printed text is the inspired, inerrant, infallible text. That's what they'll say. Now, I'm not going to try to argue against that tonight. You know, if you take my class, How We Got Our Bible, I'll explain all that in more detail. But that's where we get the King James-only argument, and all this comes into play here. But my my purpose is to show that was the text that Tyndall used in 1516. It was, it was used by every English translator. The King James version, sixteen eleven, they used the Texas recepta. So they're all using the same Greek text. They all contain John seven fifty three through eight eleven. Now the King James translators had, had had they had some other manuscripts. In fact, if you look at original King James in the will say some manuscripts don't have this. Some manuscripts don't have this. There's all kinds of textual notes there. But I'm just saying that's why it's in the King James. While we're used to it, but then if we're looking at a modern Greek text that takes looks at all these manuscripts, they're giving greater weight to the older manuscripts. In theory, something closer to the original should be more accurate, and so forth. You have to explain why 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 is this absent from these early manuscripts, and so forth. So Bibles like the NIV, the ESV, they they have that's why they have this note because they're looking. They're translating from a modern Greek text which does not have this. Well, it explains it, it talks about it, it talks about the manuscripts and so forth. So, one New Testament scholar, Dia Carson, says, There's little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. Since this story is probably true and has a long tradition in our English Bibles, we will take a look at it. So I'm not asking you tonight to accept whether you think John 7:53 or 8.11 should be in there. I don't think it should be, <laughs> but I think the story's probably true and got recorded and then put in here. But we don't have to settle that. We'll just look at it because it's a well-known story and see what the Bible says. It doesn't say anything heretical or wrong. Nothing, there's nothing wrong. Remember, at the end of this gospel, John will say, if, if, I wrote, if we wrote down everything Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books to contain everything. He did a lot of things. He did a lot of miracles that just aren't recorded. So this is probably a true story, but the question is, did John write it? Did John write it and was it inserted here? I don't think it was, but we, don't have, we won't try to settle that one here tonight. <laughs> all right, let's look at the story, the woman taking adultery, the accusation, John 7:53 through 86. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought him a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before this group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus came back to the, to the temple and went, began teaching the people after spending the night on the Mount of Olives, according to the hero. A woman who was caught in the act of adultery was brought to Jesus by some teachers of the law and Pharisees. No mention is made of the man who was equally guilty under Mosaic law and who, who could presumably have been seized at the same time. Either he escaped or, as one commentator says, the accusers themselves were sufficiently chauvinistic to focus exclusively on the woman. But the authorities are really less interested in justice than placing Jesus on the horns of the dilemma. So if Jesus says, no, don't stone this woman, then he's really going against the law of Moses. You know, the law of Moses is clear. Here's like Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So they did command stoning for adultery. That's clear in Leviticus and Deuteronomy uh, 22 also. So if he said, no, don't stone this woman, you know, his credibility is sort of undermined because he's going against the law of Moses. On the other hand, if he upheld the law of Moses and says yes, uh, he would be supporting a view which the religious leaders knew was not popular. It's doubtful that stoning was being carried out in the first century. We know the law of Moses said you can do this. This is probably the maximum penalty, but we we know from the first century, well, take the case of Joseph. Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. Well, obviously she's committed adultery. How else do you explain it? But what does he do? He doesn't say, I'm going to have this woman stoned. He says, I'm going to divorce her, sort of privately. I'm just going to divorce her. I'm not going to have her stoned, you know. So it wasn't common To carry out that kind of harsh penalty in the first century and anyway you couldn't really do it without permission of the romans anyway you couldn't i mean in the book of acts you get the stoning of stephen by the jews that's really illegal but you know the romans didn't really raise much of a fuss about stoning a jew you know but still that was illegal you couldn't just take it upon themselves to do that and so they're trying to put him in the dilemma uh if he says if he says, uh, you know, uh, carry out this sentence, he's promoting a policy that contrary to Rome, only Rome conducts, you know, he's, he's kind of in a dilemma. That's what they're trying to get him in. Uh, same thing about the question with taxes. You remember, uh, you know, and he comes up with this famous statement, you know, given to Caesar, what is Caesar and unto God, what's God. So we have another dilemma like this, the answer of Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with His finger. When they kept on questioning Him, He straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to, to throw a stone at her. Again, He stooped down and wrote on the ground. While Jesus wrote on the ground, it's obviously not known, not even whether it was intended to have any particular significance. Some, there's a lot of guesses. Some say Jeremiah 17, 13, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the springs of living water. We just don't know. When Jesus finally replied His words, let any of you who is out sin be the first to throw a stone, they reflect Deuteronomy 13, 9, 17, 70, where the witnesses have to participate in the stoning. Remember, you must certainly put them to death. Now, in these, these two cases right here, I talking about stoning for blasphemy, but it's the same principle. You got, it, I say, not blasphemy. It's for worshiping idols. If you find some Israelite who is worshiping idols, then you're supposed to stone them. So there's a penalty for uh, rejecting the Lord. You know, you, Deuteronomy says you must certainly put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death, and then the hands of all the people. For, uh, Deuteronomy says the hands of the witness must be the first in putting. Them. So, so the witnesses had to had to. Be part of this stoning. And so Jesus says, you know, let any one of you without sin, you know, go ahead and throw the stone. You're allowed to, uh, you know, by the Mosaic law, you're supposed to. Um, So, you know, we can imagine certain things. Maybe these men were hypocrites, you know, and that's what Jesus is pointing out. You know, these people are condemning this woman for adultery, committing adultery, but He knows that these men are hypocrites themselves. Maybe they they have committed adultery. They're they're, they're sinners too. So he gets them on that. Verse 9 through 11, the outcome. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left and the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Whatever Jesus wrote on the ground, maybe nothing important. Remember, they continued asking Him after He wrote the first time. It was this statement that convicted the accusers, and they left the scene. Jesus does not ask her if she is guilty, but only if there were others who condemned her. Now, her guilt is presupposed by his final words he says go now and leave your life of sin you know, don't go don't sin anymore leave your life so he's not suggesting she's not guilty she is guilty jesus is not condoning her sin uh, you know as we've noted before his mission at the present was not condemnatory he was not here as a judge i don't come to condemn you know that's not my mission now and so his mission is not to condemn but he does say go and leave your life of sin he's not He's not here to execute judgment. So that's John 750 through811. Nothing wrong with it. May, may probably represents a genuine story, but the textual evidence suggests that it is not uh, what it was not actually what John originally wrote at this particular point. Any question about that? Okay, good, good. <laughs> Resumption, uh, seminary students are always afraid about this passage. They, they debate about it, and uh, we'll have to ask Pastor, you can ask Pastor Ken, no, don't ask him, but say, hey, Pastor Ken, would you preach from John seven fifty three through eight eleven? That's always a tough one. What would you do if you're a pastor and you believe, like I do, that it's not originally part of the gospel? Would you preach it? If you're preaching through the Gospel of John, and we'll probably never know that because we'll be I'll be dead before Pastor Ken gets to the Gospel of John because he'll probably be in the book of Acts, you know we used to be in inner city and Dr. Rice I think he spent how many years was it seven, six to seven years through the book of Acts I don't know <laughs> it was old. but you know we'll be in Acts not that long, but you know a couple of years so anyway, <laughs> maybe I'll be in heaven by then so if he, ever, if he ever gets to John 7:53, when you get to heaven, tell, let me know whether he, <laughs> he preached from this or not, okay? So resumption. Would you preach it? Huh? Would you preach it? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't preach it as scripture because if you don't think it's scripture, I, I don't think I would. But it's a tough one. It's really, I don't have a problem because I can teach on it because I can explain this, you know, kind of thing. How did it end up in John? Well, we don't know. It's in the later manuscripts. And there's a lot, of, a lot of things like this, not big sections like this, but there's a lot of verses like this that, that ended up. This was a true story that apparently later on scribes, maybe in the year 800, 900,000, thought, hey, this is part of the Gospel of John. You know, we don't know if it was in a manuscript. We, don't, we, just, we just don't have a way of tracing it. And they felt like, I don't want to leave you. Scribes tend not to leave anything out. They don't want to leave anything out, so they're f- leaving out Scripture. So it got put into uh, many uh, later manuscripts, thinking probably that it had been left out by accident or something like that. Uh, so we're resumption of the discussion after the festival of tabernacles. So if John seven fifty three through eight eleven is not part of the gospel, then uh, 8, 12 follows seven fifty two, and Jesus is again speaking to the temple and at the festival of tabernacles. Jesus now claims to be the light of the world, Eight twelve through 20. When Jesus spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Along with this ceremony connected with the water at the festival, there was also the lighting of four huge lamps in the temple court of the women they were reminders of the pillars of fire that had guided Israel into the wilderness. So, you know, we talked about the high the priests go down to get the water, they come back, they pour it on the altar. And here we have the court of the women in that model. Now, we don't see the lamps here. We have descriptions of them. And here's a, here's a drawing of what they may have looked like. So there's these huge lamps there that are supposed to remind Israelites of the pillar of cloud. This is the court of the women. So the court of the women, remember, is uh, men and women can go into that court, you know, just Israelites. Only Israel, only Jews can go in there. And then the next door is the court of the men. Jewish men can go in. But then the next court is where just priests can go in. So there's a bunch of courts here, you know. Uh, so we're here, and this is a very large area, huge area. A lot of people could gather there. And this is was one depiction of what maybe these large lamps look like. Now, supposedly, one description says they were 75 feet high. I don't know, pretty, pretty high uh, kinds of things. And so uh, that may be the occasion then for Jesus saying, you know, we're part of this ceremony, the priests are coming back, there's the light, lighting of these lamps, you know. I am the light of the world. Um, So, uh, just as the Israelites follow that, you know, pillar of fire, see, remember, we're talking about the the Feast of Tabernacles, is to remind them of their wilderness journey. And so, uh, in that wilderness journey, they follow that pillar of fire. Jesus says, whoever follows me, like the Israelites followed, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, Now, Jesus doesn't go on to, do, to enhance that or discuss that. He just says it at this time. I'm like this light. So, it, you know, he uses these various images. I'm like this water that you'll never thirst again. If you, if you believe in me and trust me, you'll have, you'll be spiritually, you know, you'll have, you'll have water. You'll be, you won't be spiritually thirsty. And if you follow me, you'll have spiritual light. You won't be in spiritual darkness ever for the rest of your life. Uh, the focus now is going to shift to uh, the Jesus authority to make such a claim. How can Jesus say such a thing? The Pharisees challenged him, verse 13. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid for I know where I came from and where I'm going but you have no idea where i come from or where i'm going you judge by human standards i pass judgment on no one i mean this you know if okay <laughs> if you if you're if you're trying to figure out where that john 753 through 811 fits in this is a good place where it could fit in you see that i pass judgment on no one like he he didn't he told the woman you know i'm not condemning you you know just go and sin no more the pharisees object by bringing up Jesus' own words from John 5:31, "If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true," he said there. Since the Old Testament required multiple witnesses, Jesus is Jesus is guilty of violating proper judicial procedure. Previously, in 7:31 through 47, Jesus had appealed to other witnesses to corroborate his testimony, but now he speaks from his own authority. Though ultimately, it's not his own, since, as we learned earlier, everything he says is from the Father, what the Father gave him to say. We've gone over many verses where he said that. Everything I say is what the Father has given me to say. Uh, but in, in Jesus' case, he can offer true testimony as the Son of God, of course. Only he came from the Father. Only he is going to the Father. You know, but of course, the Jews don't appreciate this kind of testimony. I say Jesus' opponents, judge by human standards, they see Jesus as only a man not the word made flesh. The words are, his words are reminiscent of Paul in 2 Corinthians five sixteen. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do no longer. So this is how these Jews are looking upon, like Paul did from a worldly point of view. Uh, so Jesus says, you know, he passes judgment on no one. Um uh, that is, he doesn't judge in this worldly, superficial way that his opponents are judging. He's not judging in that way. Verse uh, 16. But if I judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it's written, the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. All of this does not mean that Jesus judges in no sense as we've already seen, the Son of Man has been given unique authority to judge. And if Jesus were to make a judgment now, it would prove to be correct because in this area, as in every other, Jesus does not stand alone, but stands with the Father who sent him. So, because of his relationship, because of the relationship between the Father and the Son, there's always two witnesses, which and it meets the formal requirement of the law. That's why Jesus is saying he has this authority because he's always got the witness of the Father. Now, he's tried to explain this relationship between him and the Father. They don't get it. It's it's difficult. It's it's even hard for us to understand the Trinity and understand the relationship. He's tried to explain it to them, but they're not buying it, of course. Then they ask him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus' opponents, who are thinking on a purely human level, ask, Where is your father? They want Jesus to identify his father, produce testimony from him. Jesus responds here in a way of, you know, 537 through 38. If you knew me, you would know the father. If you've seen me, he says in chapter 14, you've seen the father, you know. Um, The place where the offerings were put here, it says he was teaching in the temple court near the place where the offerings were put. These were probably, as far as we know, in that court of the women here. There were uh, 13 chests there that were located in the court of the women Women had access to it. We know there because you remember the widow's might in the King James, you know, the widow comes in, she puts money uh, and alms in the temple and so forth. She's coming. So it had to be a place where the women could come too. It couldn't be in the court of the men, had to be in the court of the women. So we assume it's, so there, Josephus, other authors talk about this, these chests here in the court of the women that Jews could come, Jewish people could come and, make offerings here. So we're talking about Jesus' authority. Jesus claimed a heavenly origin. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. In verse 21, Jesus basically repeats the thought of 733 through 34. Remember, he talked about he was going away and they said, is he going out to teach the Gentiles? Is he going somewhere out in the diaspora or something like that? Uh, as before, he is misunderstood. I'm going away refers to Jesus' death, the means by which he goes to his father. Yes, he's going to the father. He's going away. They don't, of course, they don't understand that. So Jesus is not saying the Jews will seek him in a personal sense, that you'll seek Jesus. Um, he means that they'll go on looking for the Messiah. I'm going away and you'll keep looking for me. I'm the Messiah, but you're going to keep on looking. And they're still looking. They're still waiting. Jesus is still waiting for the Messiah to come. Uh, And if they do, they can't possibly find him because they've rejected the only Messiah there is. There's only Jesus and that's all there is. And so if they reject him... The result is you die in your sin, unfortunately. There's no other other solution. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that what he says? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. The Jews' only explanation was that Jesus was contemplating suicide, although they doubted it, the question Will he kill himself? Expects a negative answer. He won't kill himself, will he? Is that what he's talking about? Jesus pointed out that their problem was the difference between their origin and his. They were spiritually dead, in sin, limited to this world, and they were insensitive to spiritual truth, what Jesus was telling them. Jesus, on the other hand, is from heaven, sent by the Father. Of course, this is not new to us. This is the basic divide of all humanities, it's the divide we face today, you know, you're either saved or you're lost, you either have spiritual life or you don't, you're going to accept the truth of God or you're going to reject it, there's just two ways, you know, and as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, and that's what these people are, They're, that's the way it is. Jesus claimed to be the I am of his people. Eight twenty four through twenty nine. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am He. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are who are you? They ask. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Jesus replied. What does Jesus mean when he says I am He? He means, I am the one I claim to be. In fact, interesting, I think the NIV 84, is, <laughs> that's why they translated this. They added those words because when he says, if you don't believe that I am He, what is he saying? He means, if you don't believe who I claim to be, the Jews not, if the Jews are not to die on their sins, they must believe that Jesus is who He has been claiming to be in His discourse. This phrase, I am He, probably has even greater significance than the Jews comprehend at this point. The Greek expression does not actually contain the word he, but it can legitimately be supplied if the context requires it. So, the Greek expression could mean, if you don't believe that I am or it could mean if you don't believe I am he you know what there's kind of an ambiguity here in the greek literally jesus is saying that jews will die in their sins if they don't believe that jesus is i am this is an assertion of deity jesus is identifying himself with i am statements in Exodus 40 through 55, especially Isaiah, Deuteronomy. And ultimately, these go back to Exodus 3.14. You remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai, the burning bush, and he says, okay, (laughs) you want me to go down to Israel, I mean, go down to Egypt and say, you know, who am I going to say sent me? Who who am I He says, God says, I am that I, I am that I am. You know, this great I am. So, you know, that's what we have here. We have these I am statements in the Old Testament. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. Deuteronomy 17, 7. See now that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded, I will heal. No one can deliver out of my hand. And there's the verse, Moses, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. They said, well, who is, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Or I am that I am, I am who I am. Uh, And that's what, you know, probably the name Yahweh, you hear Ken say Yahweh a lot of times, Y-A-H-W-E-H, Yahweh. So um, King James says Jehovah, sometimes Jehovah. So in the Old Testament, uh, the personal name of God is the letters Y-H-W-H. So it's Y-H-W-H. Well, there's no, there's no vowels in that. The original Hebrew didn't have any vowels. We hypothesize that the vowels are that's why we say Yahweh, we're, we're supplying two vows, we don't know. There's a lot of debate about how that, it, it came into various languages. Sometimes it's, it's, brought, it's brought in as Jehovah, it's more correctly Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, but there's a long history of why it became Jehovah. I'll take my class, how we got our Bible, we'll talk about that. But, but anyway, Jehovah, Yahweh, it's the personal name of God, it's like Bill, you know. or or Ron, you know, that's God's personal name. Uh, God is a title, but Yahweh is a personal name. And it goes back to this, I am. And Jesus seems to be identifying with that. This becomes clear later on in verse 58, because, you know, when he says, before Abraham was, not, you know, I I I exist. He says, "I am." (laughs) That's quite a statement. Not before Abraham was, I I was back. I am. I am. I was there, and I still am. That's a that's a. And what do the Jews do? Stone this guy, man. He's claiming to be God. They understand that very clearly. They don't get it here. They don't they don't quite get what he's saying at this point, but. We'll get two other instances. In the last instance, it'll become perfectly clear, and they'll take up stones to stone him. Um, so he's declaring here just what I've been telling you from the beginning. He, he's saying my claims have been consistent from the beginning. They're not getting it. But... Uh, you know however hard it is for them to understand it's consistent with the previous revelation that he's been giving them verse 26 i have much to say in judgment of you but he who sent me is trustworthy and what i have heard from him i tell you tell the world they did not understand that he was telling them about his father so jesus said when you have lifted up the son of man remember that's his favorite title for himself as the messiah Then you will know that I am He. (laughs) But there's that I am. There's There's no He there, but you can supply it. And that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. The full disclosure of who Jesus is must wait until the Son of Man is lifted up one of the functions of the cross is to reveal who Jesus is. This does not mean that all of Jesus' enemies will be converted, but if they do, but if they do come to Jesus, it will be because of the cross. And so ultimately, uh, the cross uh, will be the means by which you know, his, who He is will really be brought to life his death, burial, and resurrection, and then ultimately his glorification. In fact, that's what Paul, remember, says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. That's what Jesus is talking about here. If I'm lifted up, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and given him gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that day is coming, but the cross is ultimately, and what the events that come after the death, his burial, resurrection, is what will reveal all this to be so. Well, Jesus claimed to be the truth that set men, sets men free from sin. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews he had believed, that who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. As a result of Jesus' teaching, many of his hearers believed in him. But later on in the discourse, Jesus accuses these disciples of trying to kill him in verse 37. He also says they are slaves to sin in verse 34. He says they're indifferent to His word in verse 37. They're children of the devil in verse 44. They're liars. So as we previously noted, the word believe, that pistua word, does not necessarily refer to genuine saving faith, and the word disciple simply means a learner. So as He spoke, many believed in Him. But Remember in John 2, it says Jesus didn't believe in them, remember? to the Jews who had believed Jesus said now if you hold to my teaching you are really my disciples so there's disciples and there's disciples <laughs> there's genuine belief and there's not genuine belief you know and so um, so um, so there, you know there is a way to believe in Jesus that's not salvific and we've talked about that in this class that If we talk about faith or belief, uh, since the Reformation especially, theologians have tried to explain that to us by using three concepts. Remember what those were? So first of all, there has to be knowledge. One has to know, you know, know who Jesus is. You've got to know that. The illustration is often used of the chair, and I'll use that. So you have to know, you have to have knowledge, then you have to have assent, you have to say, yes, I know it, but I believe it's true. But real biblical faith takes a trust or commitment. The simple illustration is the chair, you know. I might say to someone, "Uh, here's a chair, if you sit in that chair, it'll hold you up. It won't fall. You won't fall if you sit in that chair, you know. And I might say to, uh, to Ron, I might say, Ron, if you sit in this chair, <laughs> it won't, uh, it, you won't fall. And Ron says, okay, yeah, I I, I believe that. I agree with that. So, so I've, told, I've told Ron, you know, I, I've given him the knowledge. Hey, John, here it is. And Ron might say, yeah, I got you. But the real proof in the pudding is if he comes down here and sits in it. You know, then he's trusted it. Then he's committed, hasn't he? So there are those three elements. That's a good way to try to understand saving faith. But here we're talking really about if you hold to my teaching. You know, here's how you distinguish. It's what theologians, remember, call perseverance, continuing in faith. That, that's, how, that's how Jesus says you really sort of know. Uh, if someone continues in faith. And that's true for, that's even in our own lives. How do we know we're saved? You know, one evidence, usually theologians talk about three parts to it. There is uh, the promises of God, promises, John three sixteen. I believe that, okay. There's the witness of the Spirit, But there's also uh, our own lives, perseverance. There's evidence. There's fruit. By your fruits, you'll know them, Jesus said. And so that's how we know about other people, you know. We'll have people over the life of this church come to this church, join the church. They'd get baptized and join, but they they go by the wayside, you know. Now, maybe they'll come back. We don't know. Sometimes, you know, some people, Christians can fall away for a while. They can go into egregious sin. You know, they can sin for a long time. Uh, but, you know, that's how we sort of know if, if a person sticks with it. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you hold to my teachings, verse 32, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Holding Jesus' teaching does not only establishes the genuineness of faith, it also has, the, has its own authenticating power. We come to know the truth not simply by intellectual assent, but by moral commitment. Faith precedes knowledge. You remember uh, we used that, that, what Augustine said, I believe, therefore I know. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God, John 7, 17, will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak of my own. Adherence to truth brings freedom. So anyone, if then you will know the truth, if you're really my disciples, and this truth will set you free. Now, this is one of the most abused verses in the entire Bible. It's used by, if you're a secular person around, you know, if you know the truth. Now, it doesn't matter what the truth is. (laughs) It can be any truth. But if you know this truth, this truth will set you free. Uh, You know. If you know the certain truth, you'll be free from ties, all ties, all hindrances. You know, you're kind of your own authority. But the next couple of verses indicate that Jesus is speaking about freedom from sin. Uh, he's not talking about inward discovery. If you know the truth, you'll be free to just discover your inward self. And, no. <laughs> uh, what we're talking about here is freedom from the power of sin but we'll better talk about that next time because those naughty people out in the hall are talking real loud <laughs> and, discur- disc- and disturbing my eloquent speeches here. You know, <laughs> it's, it's very discouraging. All right, thank you so much. We will, Lord willing, see you next time.